Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with the awesome Najahi events. More about them later. Today's guest in the blue corner is somebody I've got a huge amount of respect for because he is a few years ahead of me in the world of sales, selling 365 properties in one year. That's how good he was at selling real estate. Let me give you a bit of a background. Okay, he learned his skills by failing miserably in his first year of work. He then became dedicated to mastering the art of sales. And by the age of 27, he'd perfected his technique and become a millionaire. He's been working in sales since 1974 and shares his expertise through his books. His most famous one, How to Master the Art of Selling, has sold over a million copies and translated into 10 languages. Tom puts a focus on the how-tos of selling with practical strategies and tactics at the core of his training. He teaches people the steps they need to take to increase their income. Tom's success at training people on how to communicate with buyers to increase sales is incredible. He's trained over 5 million salespeople across five continents. And being a sales trainer myself, I'm excited to speak to, to Tom about the strategies he has learned and how his journey shaped the person he is today. Ho ho, Tom the legend Hopkins. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, I've landed a legend. He's here on the show. Give him a big round of applause. It's Tom Hopkins. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and taking time to talk to us today. Uh, when we talk about legend, that word is used very loosely nowadays, but truly you are one of the legends of an industry that I am incredibly passionate about. And I know that many of our listeners are too. So first of all, thank you for coming on the show. And where are you? What part of the world are you in today, sir? I'm in my home in Scottsdale, Arizona. And my oh. wife and I have been oh. putting this together. So yeah, we, uh, we're excited about it. So I'm ready whenever you are, my friend. I've got a great sales story from Scottsdale, Arizona. So um, uh, I know obviously that Forever Living are over there and their headquarters are there in Scottsdale, the big network marketing company. But I have a couple of clients that are in an industry that I had never heard about, like never heard about at all. And they buy, renovate and sell at mobile homes. And... We don't have those in this part of the world, you know. It's just not something that's normal. And so they wanted some help with some sales coaching. Uh, Jay and Samira, they'll be listening to this. So a lovely couple. And uh, I'm like, well, what do, you, what do you need help with? Okay, what do you need help with? And um, they're like, we need to know how to sell better. So I said, what exactly do you do? And they said, we sell mobile homes. I'm like, well, I don't get that. So what's that? I don't understand it. And they said, well, we, we take mobile homes. I'm like, well, there can't be that many, surely. And when they told me just in, in Phoenix, Arizona, that there were 200 mobile home parks and approximately 200 mobile homes per mobile home park, my mind was blown. And so literally, I couldn't believe it. And then we made a video because I've been out on a mobile home park with them to go and see what they were talking about because I couldn't get my head around it. Eventually, we went out there and they're like, we buy these things for about $5,000. We beautify them and we sell them for about $20,000. And I'm like, okay, so what's the sales cycle? How long does it take? They're like, four weeks on average, sometimes six weeks. And I'm like, you're making that much of a markup in that industry and I've never heard of it? I'm like, if I lived over here, I'd come and compete with you. <laughs> yeah, mobile homes are big here. Uh, we, you know, we, Scottsdale and Flagstaff are the two biggest areas here. And, and so many folks that live in Flagstaff have a mobile home because they take it up there. They have mobile home park places. And that way they can have almost like the, the home away from home. Because in the summer, June, July, August, September here, we hit about 110 to 15, which I think is 45 or 50, 46 Celsius. And it's just awful. So most of the folks that are financially blessed, they leave and go to flight staff as an example. And that's why they all have mobile homes. But yeah, it is a huge industry here. 
Wow, so something I never knew about. Okay, right, let's talk about sales because that's the reason that I'm on the show and that's the reason I've got you here. And I think that, in a, and this is, a, this, is, um, this is my interpretation, in the UK, everybody hates a salesman, but in the United States, everyone loves a trier. Is that fair? You know, I don't know about fairness, but most of the people that really understand business here, larger, small businesses, they realize that the, one of the most important parts are the point of sale that a person makes on the phone to make an appointment for a live meeting. And then, of course, how they handle people when they come into their automobile dealership, into their real estate office, into their insurance program. And that's been my life for almost 40 years, teaching people that have to close the sale to get the check to invest it and make a, a living. So in their financial uh, independent years, they are financially secure and able to uh, you know, enjoy their golden years in, in dignity. But selling is such a foundational part of our United States free enterprise capitalistic country that most companies really value the importance of that human being called salesperson. And I think that selling is the foundation of our free enterprise. And most companies, they really will say, hey, if we don't have good people on the phone prospecting, if we don't have good people going out knocking on doors, then we really won't prosper and beat our competitor because we're very competitive in our country on companies that know exactly what their competition, how many numbers they sell, how much they make, and so that is really a motivator for companies to get their salespeople trained, which has been great for me because I, I love teaching. I love motivating folks. And of course, teaching them the art form because selling is not just a, a, a game of luck or chance. You have to know exactly what you're saying, exactly how you're gonna lead them with the right questions and how you're going to be someone they like and trust because that's one of the foundations. If I had two minutes in an elevator with you, Spencer, and you said, Tom, I recognize you from the cover of your book, I'm reading it, and, and we have 10 floors together. What is the most important thing I need to know about selling and building my business? <clears throat> I would say work harder on yourself than you do on your job to become a person that more people like, trust, and want to listen to. And that has been foundational, Spencer, in my teaching, that if they like you, then they'll build to the trust. And then, of course, they'll not only have to listen to you, which is true of any selling situation, in the beginning, they have to hear you because you're talking. When it goes from a have to to a want to, that's when you're doing great in professional selling. I would agree with you, absolutely. Now, you've had so much success, but, and most people, considering the success you've had, and as a proud salesperson as you are, would think you, my grandmother would say, he was born with the gift of the gab, or he, he had natural flair, he had natural communication, charisma, charm, and that kind of stuff. But what a lot of people might not know is that you, you didn't start off as a great sales guy. You struggled at first, didn't you? Yes, terribly. Uh, just a quick background, uh, I, my father and mother were very old school and they sacrificed financially to send me to college. And I went to college because they paid and wanted it. But after three months, 90 days, I knew that the academic setting college was not for me. And I think everybody watching us right now can look back at a point or a time or a detail in their life that was a, a point of change where they had to make a decision. And when I came home after 90 days of college, my dad walked in the room and said, you quit college, Tom? I said, dad, it's not for me. I mean, I'm not getting good grades. I don't like it. And so I'm not going to go to college. And I, my dad was a strong, good man. And I'd really never seen him cry. But tears filled his eyes. And he said, son, I will always love you, even though based on your decision not to get an education, go to college, I can honestly say you'll probably never amount to anything. 
And that was for me, my first real motivational talk where I had something to prove that somehow I was gonna find a way to not only make a good living, not only invest in real estate, but to become financially independent. And I think a highlight, you know, we look at highlights in our life. Well, my dad was a good man. My dad loved golf, but he, he was not blessed to have much money. And even back then, for an average working bloke, there was a lot of money to play golf. And so, you know, when we look at the different highlights in my life, and I, I called my mom and dad into my office, and I says, Mom, Dad, I, I have a little something for you. And I held off some keys. I said, Dad, take these. And he said, what is it? You'll know in a while. So he took the keys. And I said, Dad, I know you've always wanted to play golf. I have been so financially blessed. I bought a home on a golf course for you and mother. And we want you to move there. And we've got you a membership at the golf course. And you can live in that house. I'm giving it to you as a gift. But if you don't play golf at least three times a week, then I'll have to evict you. And of course, my dad <laughs> laughed and he and mother moved in. And sure enough, he played golf every, every week, probably for three years. And wouldn't you know it, how funny this, not funny, but my dad went to the first tee uh, about the third year. And sure enough, Darnity had a stroke and passed away on the first tee of, of the golf course. No way. And of course, no you know, way. my mom, I know my mom and I were at the funeral and she goes, Tom, I was Tommy then. She says, Tommy, you changed your father's life by getting us a home on the golf course. He's never been happier for the last three years. And so, again, I think these are the type of things that you do or you have in your life that are, are moments that define your existence, the reason you are alive, the reason you're a human being. And so that was a highlight for me to be able to be blessed with abundance, to be able to do that. And uh, anyway, so I don't know how I got into that, but that was my one of my main motivators. And I got to share this with you, too. Um, Spence, I, I went uh, into my bedroom when he told me that. I was almost in tears. And that night, my Uncle Don came over for dinner. And Uncle Don was a general manager of one of the largest steel companies in California. And he walked in my bedroom. I'm sitting on the bed. He says, is this true, Tom? You're not going to college? I says, Uncle Dan, Don, it's not for me. And I just hate it, so I'm not gonna go. He says, well, what are you gonna do with your life? I said, I have no idea. He goes, well, as you know, I'm general manager of Bethlehem Steel, the largest steel company in California. And we've been given the job to build the bridge decks from Los Angeles into up to San Francisco. This was a brand new freeway and a bridge deck is smooth of concrete, but inside a bridge deck are tons of reinforcing rebar. And he says, I'll give you a job carrying steel. And for you that don't understand steel, th this is a, about a number four bar right there. That's what you see in your swimming pool before they pour the concrete because there's no tensile strength of concrete without reinforcing rebar. Well, on a bridge deck, the main bar is a number 11 bar. See, this is a four. A number 11 bar is inch and three eighths, 60 feet in length, 208 pounds. And the only way you get them to the deck out of the truck when they dump them in the dirt is men like animals, pick them up, put them on their shoulders. And of course, when I'm doing a seminar, I always have fun with the audience. I said, I did that for a year. Hardest thing I'd ever done. And by the way, you see, I'm five foot seven. I was six foot two when I started doing that. <laughs> of course, they all they all love they all love that story. But it, it was true, and I did that for a year. And my father, again, the man that motivated me with his statement, he came to my house, our little apartment. I had to move out of the house, 
And he says, Tom, I came by because Uncle Don tells me you outwork everyone on the job as far as carrying steel. And you're a young guy. I was only 18. And I says, yeah, Dad, I, I want to outwork anybody. And so I carried the steel for a year. And then he said to me, look, you got a nice way with people. Right here in California, you can get a real estate license at 18, which I just had turned. And I says, oh, Dad, that means I have to pass an exam. You know I'm bad in school. He goes, Tommy, you got to get out of carrying steel and get a real estate license. Well, sure enough, I failed the real estate exam three times. I was about to quit. And I thought, I'll give it one more try. And sure enough, the fourth time I got my real estate license. But then, see, people say to me, you didn't do well your first six months or a year. You know, you made a lot of money in the last part, my third and fourth year. But when I started, I had so much going against me. You know, selling and sales and marketing is a lot like gambling, meaning when you gamble, the odds usually, especially if you go to Vegas and go into the Sands or the Mirage or one of the big hotels, they got the games all set where they know after all that 24-hour period of people in that hotel, how, about how much it's not quite what now that it was because of the epidemic. But uh, long and short of it, that's kind of what like selling is like. It, it's, it's a game that you have to have the odds in your favor. And I didn't. You know, here I am, 18. I look young. I didn't have a car. So you need a car to sell homes. And I had a motorcycle. Yeah. So I'm having people follow me on my bike. And then, of course, it was so bad, Spence, because if they didn't like the home, I'm on my bike. And they just get in their car and drive away. And I, I chase some of them. I say, come back here. I'm going to find them. <laughs> get over here. But anyway, I, in my six months, I, I made one little sale. My income was $42 a month for my first six months. And then I spent the, almost the last money I had in the bank to go to a, quote, seminar. And the instructor, a very successful man, he said, you must find a mentor, someone that you want to emulate, someone that you want to copy. And he says, I suggest you go back to your company, find out who makes the most money. And one thing over the years I've learned is the people that make the most money are usually pretty nice folks. And they love to help other people get up and do a better job. So in California, Los Angeles, where this was, the company I worked for was one of the largest real estate companies. And I found out that the highest income person was a woman named Rose Lane. And I called Rose Lane and I said, Rose, I, I've heard how successful you are. I'm just 19, just turning 19. I've made no money, but my seminar instructor said find someone who's making a lot of money and see if they'll let you watch them god bless her she said you come you can ride in my car when i show homes you can go with me on a listing presentation and <clears throat> i was like a sponge spence i'd sit there and take notes i'd listen to her phraseology every word she would say and sure enough i started copying her and all of a sudden, I, I made one sale, and I thought, hey, I made a sale. Next thing you know, because of following what she said, I made another sale. And, of course, long and short of it, after about six months, it started to come in, the money. And all of a sudden, and I'd never won hardly anything. I mean, I was so mediocre in my early years. But I started winning the first place trophy in this company and then I got turned on to the fact that I can win and I'm gonna win and so I spent eight years uh, full-time real estate five selling and then three in management of salespeople. and I was so fortunate that my dad ins almost insisted I get a real estate license and find that niche which is real estate it's a great business 
Um, I do a lot of training of realtors, but I also now train at my seminars. There's almost no industry that doesn't send someone when I go into a city. Let me just ask you a question about that, because for me, it's really interesting considering the, 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 that term, which I really identify with, but some people may not, is that winning. Because for me and my success, it, it wasn't about how much money I made because I never used to measure things in, in money. I measure them in deal counts, so the, how many deals I'd done. But, but for me, it was winning was the most important thing. Now, I don't know where it came from. I was competitive when I was younger. I was bullied quite badly at school. And so I had to prove, I, I wanted to prove somebody wrong. So that's similar with our stories. But that winning thing, is something that is, is, is in me somewhere. And once I got a taste of it, like you mentioned, you know, you get an award, a plaque, a trophy, a recognition, it then ignites a fire that can never go out. And was that, was that the same for you? Exactly. And you mentioned it. I was quarterback of our football team. I always played sports. And I had this burning desire to take our team and win. And... I think that carries through this desire to, to win and be the best. And one thing I've learned is you can be the best if you're willing to pay the price of outworking everybody to you build what I call momentum. Then you build referrals from the people you've made happy. Then all of a sudden you never have to prospect at a certain point. And if you have your goals in writing financially as to what you want to make annually, and of course, have a net worth goal for your golden years, how much money you want to live off the interest when you don't ever do anything but enjoy golf and life. So that's kind of what happened. But it was a changing experience when I, when I started going out with Rose Lane and listening and watching and then copying her. There was a lady in my early career called Jackie Martinelli. And Jackie, uh, uh, and she was, she, I can describe her. Back, this was back in the, the late 80s, early 90s. So she had that, this big kind of curly perm hair of like a golden blonde color. She, she used to wear um, a, a jacket with, a, with a, a blouse and a, like a pencil skirt and high heels. She was much older than me, but you could see she was a very elegant lady. And she took me out selling. And I remember I was sat next to her in a client meeting and she was with, with the buyer. And we were going through the process of the sale. And like you, I was busy taking notes. And I remember she, this would never happen today. But she, she leant across and she put her hand on the knee of the guy that we were with. And she said, so when do you think we should start and get going with this? And he looked at her and she looked at him. And I, and I was like, that was amazing. And I got in the car afterwards. I'm like, Jackie, that was amazing. She said, don't you ever do it, though, because it will come across the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's like with my lady that trained me, Rose Lane. I went on the first listing appointment, how to list a home. And I'll never forget that she walks in the house, the husband and wife asked us to come in and she walks in and we're in the living room. Now keep in mind, we've not sat down. We've not talked about putting the home on the market. And she walks in the living room and puts her hand to her face. And she goes, oh, no, no, we'll have to rearrange and stage this room differently. I can see exactly. And of course, I'm going, we haven't even sat down. And she's telling him she's going to have him take out certain pieces of furniture. We'll move this over here. Piano's got to be there. I'm going, my God. And of course, they're going, oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, see, she's building yes momentum within the first five minutes. And of course, they knew she was the top producer in one of the largest companies in California. So of course, I watched her. I thought, okay, you have to be assumptive, but you have to do it nicely. And and you know, I have a little a little saying. I call it selling is a process where we wimp. W e m f wimp. You got it. Yeah. And that is an acronym I'm teaching now, because if you look at WIMF, it's what we all must do. And so the W is we, which means all of us in sales and marketing. The E is educate. We must be educators. I, I believe, Spence, people across the table or desk 
have to, after just a short time, say we are getting knowledge that'll benefit our lives in one way or another. So we have the W, the E, and the M. M is for motivate. You motivate people to take an action. And there are basically seven motivators. That's why you ask so many questions to find out what motivates these people to take the action. And then the F in WIMF, we educate, motivate, and have fun. I think people want to enjoy themselves. And that's why I try to get salespeople to come to my seminars to come up with some uh, levity. If you've said something that elicits a, a, a laughter, because laughter is like healing, as it says in the Bible, laughter is healing to the bones. And people love to laugh. I build in a lot of little fun things in my seminars. And of course, now when I do one, I, I try every six to eight minutes to say even a little sentence or something that elicits enjoyment and laughter. And, and I find I, I speak normally from nine to five. And in that six, seven, eight hours, I will probably say 50 to 100 fun little things. And I don't mean being a comedian, but having, you know, some fun in it. And so, yeah. you, you know, I, I, I try that always when I'm with people. I think, I think, I think we, we, if, if you're not enjoying the process yourself, then nobody else is going to enjoy it around you. Absolutely. That when you think about selling in the olden days, we used to have this approach and, and I learned to sell in the office equipment industry. So I was, I was taught by rank Xerox. And so my, my teachings come from just like you would know, a hundred door knocks a day, a hundred cold calls a day, every day for two years solid. And, and, I, and I didn't know anything else, but by golly, by gosh, was I taught well. I was taught to deal with rejection. And I think I got a crocodile skin very quickly because rejection bounced off me. And I think that was something I, I, I'm very grateful for because a lot of people rejection really, really impacts. And they really find it hard to get their head around it, to get the momentum when they get rejection. However, for me, it's like, look, you've got to earn the yes, which means you have to find the no's. And so earn the yes by finding the no's. Eventually, there'll be a yes in there. And if you can do that consistently enough and not fear that the no's are personal rejection, then you've got somewhere to go from. But it, you know, it doesn't matter whether you go back to you know, my era is the, the 80s, the 90s and whatnot, or whether you go to today, rejection really impacts people. So I want to talk to you about that, but I also want to talk to you about the difference you speak about WEMF as you just did, educate and motivate. Back in the day, it was about seeing the prospect, finding out what their needs are, writing a proposal, sending it to them, okay? And then once they decided to buy, bring all of the value afterwards, you know, the after-sales service and all that kind of stuff. But the world has, the world has changed. Nowadays, everybody wants the value first, before, okay, now lawyers don't like that because lawyers don't like to give value first. They want to get paid before they give any value because <laughs> that's, how they, that's how they tend to operate. But at the end of the day, they're selling a service too. And so what do you think about that? How that used to be all those years ago and how that then evolved into now today where people need that value. They need to know that you know your subject. They need to see that you brought value to the table first. You know, I think you've hit a very important point. Uh, you really have to have in-depth product knowledge. And I think one of the reasons that I did not well when I first started, I'd never bought a home, owned a property. I had no knowledge and I couldn't understand FHA or VA or conventional financing. So, I mean, all this was a blur for me. And again, luckily I, I, didn't give up and quit. And luckily I found my niche and I had eight glorious years selling homes and uh, investing in real estate. And, you know, it, it was a foundation for me. And my, my best year, in fact, I, I don't brag on this, but everything came together on my fourth year, meaning the interest rates had been 18%, believe it or not. Well, in a matter of 90 days, they dropped to 6%. And everyone in, that was thinking of buying had been hidden away. And they said, we're not going to do anything. They were immobilized because of the interest rates. When they dropped, 
they all came out of the woodwork. And I happened to be at a point where I had prospected so much, made so many calls and contacts. And because the interest rates dropped, everybody was buying. And so I wasn't even keeping track. I mean, I wasn't like you. I I loved what I was doing. And my manager on November 15th, my fourth year, calls me into his office and I'm a little nervous, you know, I'm in there buying myself with him. And he was the old manager. And uh, he says, Tom, are you aware of what you're doing? And I says, well, yeah, I'm having a blast listing and selling homes. But he says, are you aware that I did some figuring and it's November 15th, but you have been averaging one home sale a day for the entire year which wasn't every day one, but I might on a weekend, Saturday, Sunday, I might get five transactions because that's the real estate days of showing property. And he says, Tom, if you can continue this and we can honestly say you sold 365 homes, averaging one a day for an entire year, which had never been done, the phone will ring off the hook for you to come and teach. And sure enough, I hit it. And my general manager, he loved to let every other company know. And I was, I was 23 at the time. And uh, he... Uh, Whoa, hold on a minute. Let's just, let's just have a moment here. 365 day, 365 properties in a year sold. Is that a world record? Has anyone ever beaten that? I mean, that is just nuts. And, and because, you know, back then the homes were in the 20s and 30s, today they're in the three to five to a million. So I don't think anyone will ever be able to do that. But when I, when I teach this, I say you've got to have a team, meaning you can't do it all yourself. And I have loyal people, an escrow officer, a, a financing officer. And these folks knew that I would close so many sales, make them money. So they were loyal to me. They worked their hearts out. And, and I tried to teach people, you've got to rely on others if you're going to have a huge sales and marketing volume because you can't do all the details. But uh, my phone did. I got, I, I went to the Los Angeles. Oh, this is how funny thing. I didn't know I was going to get into dispense, but I went to the Los Angeles real estate convention in LA. And, you know, I was 24 just turning 24 and they uh had heard about this so they asked me to speak and i'd never spoken and so when you're a new kid on the block you you usually have what we call a breakout session at the convention and there was 5,500 people at the convention and i was going to speak at one to about 150. Well, this started at eight and I don't know why I woke up early. I thought, what the heck? I'm going to go see the convention kick off. And so I put my suit and tie and my little speaker's badge on so I could get back, you know, backstage. So I'm standing on the uh, stage waiting. And the featured speaker was a man named Peter Thomas. And he had written a book. I'm sorry, Thomas Peters. And Thomas Peters wrote a book called The Peter Principle, which in the 60s was like a bestseller. Everybody read The Peter Principle. And he was the first speaker at eight. Well, I'm standing there at eight and suddenly the president of the association comes over and he says, Tom, our speaker's caught in LA traffic in an accident. We got to start, can you go on? And I says, I had no idea what I was going to say, 5,500 versus 150. And I mm-hmm. said, yes. Then he said, the only thing is, Tom, you can only speak till he shows up and then you're done. So I have no idea how long I'll speak. I don't even really know what I'm going to speak about. So I walked out on the stage and of course he introduced me and said, this young man in his early 20s, Last year sold 365 homes, averaging one a day, which has never been done. And there was an awe in the audience. And I walked out and I looked out at the audience and I said, all of you and your company 
might be saying 10 words that are costing millions of dollars a year. Now quickly take out a business card and I'm gonna tell you 10 words you must eliminate. And of course, because of the number of homes they reached in and we all wore coats back then, not so much today. They pull out a pen and they pull out the paper and I'd start through my 10. Never tell the price of a property. When they hear price, their thought go, let's see if we can get a better one. It's the total investment, never price. They're going, ooh, I like that. And don't ask for a down payment, that's money. It's the initial investment. Ooh, I like that, well here's 5,500 heads. Just like this, ooh. Don't ever call your form a contract. They don't want to get near one. It's the agreement. People love to agree. They just don't want to get near a contract. Whoa. Well, anyway, I went through my 10 words, 12 minutes. And wouldn't you know, I finished the last word and the president walked out and said, what'd you think of this young guy? Well, I got a standing ovation like you would not believe because no one had ever taught the 10 words. They were not knowledgeable about how we're all in the word business on what we say and how we say it. And it was right. My phone started ringing off the hook. And I, I did two years of going to real estate companies and teaching that I did it for free. If they if I had to fly there, they pay the airfare. If I had to drive, they pay the gas. But I had no fee because I knew I can't be great at it unless I do it a lot. So that's when I started writing my first book, How to Master the Art of Selling. And that took me three years to write, but that book uh, kind of opened the whole door for me to become a national sales trainer, motivator, whatever. But uh, yeah, it, it's been amazing. Um, I pinch myself, Spence, because it's been such a fabulous life. Great kids, great wife, everything. So anyway, that's that's kind of my my story. And I think the reason how to master the art of selling has done so well is I tried to give people exactly what to say. Meaning, if a buyer doesn't want to think it over, which a lot of them will, here's seventy three words you learn and rehearse like an actor or actress, and you deliver them, and you'll end up taking their no or stall. I want to think it over into a final objection, then handle the final objection, and you'll close the sale. And, and so this is why the book, I think, did so well, because it's all very how-to. Very, here's what you say when they say what they say. Talk, talk, talk to me about the, look, I, I, I've got a, a similar story in terms of the fact that I was successful as a salesperson, then I moved into the, the teaching arena, and... When I, when I look back on all of the years, <clears throat> obviously we have fond memories of the early days like everybody does. We get melancholy about it. But what, what do you enjoy most? Going out and making a sale or influencing people with your knowledge and experience? Let's face it. If you make a sale, you're helping people. And, you know, uh, I can't tell you the stories, all of them, but I have had a seminar a few years ago in San Francisco and a man walked up at the break and I was autographing some books on the break. And he walked up, he says, Tom, I know you don't recognize me. And he gave me his name. But in 1968, think about that, 68, my wife and I walked into your real estate office and we had no money or very little. We were going to rent a home. And you ask us, why do you want to rent instead of own your own property? And they said, well, we have very little money. And you turned to my wife and you said, Mary, I want to ask you a question. If I, in this hand, had a home you rented and paid for the landlord's mortgage where he gets all the benefit, or here's your home that you can get the tax benefits, the ownership, the equity buildup, which would you choose if you could get either? Well, of course, we'd love to someday own a home. Well, I want you to open your minds to not renting, but let me lead you and help you. Because I know a couple properties that if we can get the seller to go along with us, I can get you to own a home. How's that sound? Oh, that's wonderful. And sure enough, I'd close that sale. Well, he said to me, that's what happened. 
He said, we paid 19,000 for this three bedroom home in 1968. We just sold it for 430,000. And that money is the largest part of our retirement income. And it's all because of you not letting us rent, but making us make a decision to own. And those are the type of things that you can never, ever not be so thrilled about. And I, I played, I, I'll tell you another example. I played golf, with, I, I lived in a home in California and uh, I played golf um, with uh, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, Wayne, of course, changed the field of hockey in the United States. He came from Edmonton, Calgary, Canada, and the Kings, LA Kings, put him in and he changed the whole field. Well, he happened to live in the same neighborhood that I did in California when I lived there. And we played golf. So anyway, whenever I'm with someone like that, I want to pick their brains, but you gotta be subtle. Well, we're driving back to the home, drop him off with his clubs after playing golf. And I said, Wayne, you don't know a lot about what I do. I, he says, well, you write books. I says, I like part of it and I do seminars. And I'd love to let people know not only about our great, great day of golf, but what do you think was the reason that you took a team to the top? You were looked at like a legend in the field of hockey. What do you think the reason was? And then he gave me a word, which I have tried to also live by. He said, Tom, I think the reason I did so well is I had an overwhelming passion for all aspects of hockey. I had a passion for winning. I had a passion for losing. I had a passion for practice. I had a passion for knowing they were all coming out to beat me because if they beat me, they'd beat our team, which was true back then. And so I've taken that word P and said, if you're gonna be long-term successful, you have to find something you do that you're passionate about, where it's not work. See, I, I don't think since I got into doing seminars, well, even in real estate, I, I don't think I ever worked. I put in long hours, I busted my hump, but I don't think it was work because I loved what I did. And, you know, finding a family, putting them in a home, getting them happy. And then of course today, I, uh, love the fact that if I have a thousand people at the seminar and maybe 10%, a hundred have a tr real good life-changing experience. They, they take home material, ideas, strategies, phraseology that impacts them in such a positive way that they do better, help more people, make more money. And I, I don't think there's anything I've always said if you can make a living, help others make a better living, what a wonderful way to live. Amen to that. Amen to that. Yeah. Now, talk to me a little bit about why people fail. You just said something important there. A, a seminar of a thousand people, those people in most of the cases have paid. They may not have paid for a ticket, but they've paid for transport and parking and food and that stuff on the day. So whatever happens, even if they got a free ticket, they've paid something to go there and be part of it. And you say 10% take away and do something. That means that 90% do nothing. Now, I don't believe for one minute 90% don't want to do something, but there is a, a, a huge amount of people that are just limited really, really heavily by inaction because they procrastinate and they want to make it perfect or they overthink it. And so how do, how do we get to those people? Because they're the people for me. You know, in any sales force, you'll always have 10% that are supremely motivated anyway. They'll come and listen, but they don't need you. They're, they're winners. They're winners no matter what. They're winners, you know. They're, they're just like that. You know, and Jack Welsh says it great. You know, he said, you've got your top 20%. He said, they're the people that you give the one-to-one -one love to. He said, you've got the group in the middle and the group at the bottom. The group in the middle, the 60%, they could make it. He said, the people at the bottom should really leave. But when you look at a sales team, <laughs> you, you, you help them find another job because it's not for them but when you find in any any you know large seminar, well there's a hundred or a thousand doesn't matter you've always got that group that are there they're buzzing they're fired up they're like hanging on every word and they just they know what that one sentence you said that day was the switch that just took them from you know uh, um, a supercharged to turbocharged but those those others 
They come because they want to learn. They're listening to you. They make notes. They're, they're like, man, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to this guy. He's a legend. He's a guru. He, he's given me so much valuable information. But they then get stuck. So what, what do you do with those people? Well, <clears throat> there's an old belief that I have that one of the greatest needs for the average human being is the need to be comfortable. And when you're putting your ego on the line where there's possible rejection, that thought creates an uncomfortableness. And so I have always tried to teach that the pain of change is forgotten when the benefits arrive. And so if you sit here and hear me and are given an outline in writing or take one of my books, and if you don't internalize it and literally study it, it's not going to have a positive effect. And you really, in a way, wasted your money. I mean, I really try my best. I, I ha have had, I'm not now, but I have had for years a seminar called Boot Camp. And many years ago, when we were kids, uh, I saw the movie Patton. And I saw that movie and sat there and thought to myself, you know, that is so true that you've got to get people to do what they fear most. And then they'll not only control fear, but what they're most afraid of can become one of their greatest strengths. And that is something I've always tried to teach and I have lived and I believe that the pain of change will be forgotten when all the benefits from the change become you and you make a lot more money you have a bigger home for your family. You send your kids to private schools. You drive a nicer than most people's vehicle. In other words, you live the life that you've been blessed to be able to here in the United States. Uh, you know, some countries that you're shamed if you drive a too nice a car. Some, some countries have a real negative attitude towards achievers. But uh, in, in our country, I, I totally believe that successful folks, they are thrilled to be able to show that they've done something. And I think average folks are threatened because they don't want to go through the pain of change to get the benefits that'll arrive. That makes well, sense? Said, oh. Yeah, absolutely. Bang on the money. Another question I've got for you is about um, people thinking that they would not be good at sales or the reason they're not successful is that sales isn't right for them. And over the years, some of the greatest managers I had and, and you know, coaches internally and in organizations I had weren't gregarious, extrovert, charming people. They were actually quite shy and introverted people, but incredibly gifted salespeople. But a lot of people will say to themselves, you know, I would never be good at it or, okay, clearly I'm not good at it because I don't have the right personality type. What, what, what do you say to people that, that have that type of excuse? Well, let me start off, Spence, by saying that we'll take two extremes. We'll take the interesting extrovert, then the interesting introvert. Now, the extra, extra, uh, uh, interesting extrovert is the talker. They love to be interesting. They love to be in control of conversation. They have the temperament and personality that gravitates into sales. The interested introvert is somewhat humble, somewhat shy. They definitely learn how to take control and close with questions, but they don't come across as a salesperson. See, many people hear the word salesperson and they think pushy, arrogant, overbearing. Where I see salesperson is empathetic, caring, and wanting to help folks have a better life. And a lot of everything in life is what you think about it, how you feel, your attitude. And I really feel that many people that are interested introverts can go into sales and because they're willing to question and listen and not talk and tell, they can be extremely successful. Um, I was in the beginning, too much of an interested, I'm an interesting extrovert. I talk too much. I, I was overbearing a little bit. And again, I started working on my personality and temperament where I made a commitment 
that I'm not going to say anything in a positive statement till I've asked a lot of questions. Because the only way you find out what they'll say yes to and what they need to overcome the fear of rejection and no to get to a yes is they have to have a feeling of confidence that they're doing the right thing. And that, I think, is what you build into a good presentation. I, I could sit and talk to you for the, for the next three days and I still wouldn't have enough time to get through what I want to talk to you about. Um, I, I just want to say, I'm going to ask you one last question before we finish, but b before I do, I just want to say genuinely thank you. It means a lot to me that you're talking to me today. And I know for the 6,000 real estate brokers that live here in the UAE in Dubai, um, they'll be taking a lot from the, the wisdom and the words that you're sharing. But if we can, if we can give some advice to uh, a young professional person in today's day's day and age. So in the world of social media, in the, the world where, you know, the, the, the idea of picking up the phone and making a cold call or the idea of knocking on a door and introducing themselves or going networking and handing out a business card and learning about somebody's um, uh, situation or the elevator pitch, which all these things that are nowadays kind of pushed away. They were the bread and butter for me, but they're now pushed away as not, not the done thing. What advice would you give to a young, hungry, maybe, maybe not loud, but shy, but someone that wants to make it when it comes to thinking about the impact of sales within their business and how critical it is for them to understand and learn key skills to help them build their career? Well, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to sell a book, but if they go to... <laughs> if, go on, plug your book, plug your book. <laughs> if, you, if you go to Amazon, Amazon is handling all my books and CDs and DVDs, and I have 52 sales training products. And of course, they're discounting them very nicely, which we all have had to do in this market. But I think if they went there, they would find some things that would help them and they've gotta be students. And I would say to this new person who's having challenges, you, know, you have to realize that your quality activities will bring you the increased income. So in the times when people are sitting on their hands, they're nervous what's what happening in the political world and the economy, the, the people that will be most successful will just outwork everyone at these times. Meaning you may have to make even more contacts, bite the bullet, learn the ideas of handling rejection. You might go to your manager or owner and say, Mr. Owner, can you give me an average amount of income that a person makes in this company when they make a sale? And, and let's say they said that you'll make $5,000. Then what you need to say is, okay, I'm going to make 5,000. It could be 500, could be a thousand. So I'm just picking a figure, but then you will find out that the average person says yes, after you make five closing attempts, that's kind of worldwide average. So if you look at that, and let's say it was $1,000 the, the man made instead of the 5000 Well, if they make five presentations, take the four no's and divide the four no's into the 1000 now each no is really worth $250. So what you've done mathematically is put a dollar value on no. And what this does is boost you so that when you go into a great presentation and they throw your butt out of the door and say, we're not interested, you walk out and go, thanks for the 250. And this is a game of putting a dollar value on the rejection. And I try, I try to get managers, please take a brand new person and play this money game with them. You know, our average person that's a top producer makes 3000. You're going to have to talk to this many people. So every time you get rejected, you're really making this much. And I call it the close for the yes by handling the no rejection by putting dollar value on the no, which keeps you having fun. And I think as I talked about fun earlier, selling is a pretty big game and you have to get up every day knowing today I might do the best I've ever done and not make a dime. And then that I all might make a lot of money and it's just a big game. And I will say this as a last thing, 
please, if you haven't got your short-term and long-term goals committed to paper, make that something you do. You see, most people don't have a goal, like in 20 years, I'm gonna have this much millions of dollars and with an interest rate of this, I'll have this much monthly coming in for my family so I don't ever need to work or make any money that it's coming to me. I also feel that most people don't have a short-term goal. And I started my first short-term goal because I didn't have a car. I had a motorcycle, as I mentioned, I wanted to get a car. And I started off with a, just a $200 piece of junk, but at least I could drive people. And then I went to the dealership. This is back many years ago. I, I would have been now about uh, 21. I was starting to make some money, not a lot yet, but I went to the Cadillac dealership because back then in our country, in real estate, the Cadillac was the car. I mean, it's not quite what it is today. Mercedes weren't even in this country. But uh, I went into the Cadillac dealership and I was young and I went in and a man walked up and I helped you see, I'd like to know how much that car is. And it was a Cadillac Eldorado, one of the first cars that had a front wheel drive, uh, beautiful green, and it was $8,800. Well, I took a picture of it and put it on my wall, which I suggest everybody that is gonna become a goal-oriented person takes pictures of the goals. If you have a goal to take your family on a vacation, get a brochure from a travel agency, put it on the wall, have everyone stare at it. We're gonna be in this place in the United States or Canada, Australia, or Budai, wherever. I'm gonna be there. And then I think it's so important that you, you have your family learn goal setting as well. Um, I know a highlight in my life, I, I started with the car and I started with a nicer car. And then I, I think it was my sixth year, I said, I wanna, because I was starting to do seminars, I wanted to get a plane. So I went and bought a Learjet. And of course, you know, this was kind of unheard of, but I was just doing so well. And I'll never forget Spence, I got on the Lear and had a phone and I told the pilot, I says, look, I want to call my dad. And so I called my dad and he goes, yeah, hi, son. Where are you? I says, dad, I'm at 30,000 feet. He says, what are you doing there? I says, I just bought a plane and this is the first flight. And I thought I'd call you and say, I got another goal. And so I'm going to be flying in my own Lear. And of course, he's the first time, I think, ever. He says, Tommy, I don't know if I've told you this, but your mother and I are so proud of you. And that was probably the first time he ever said it. But that's an example of what this wonderful life of selling and marketing and building a business, entrepreneurship activities, it's, it's what you can do with your life. And so I hope everybody hearing our message will, will take advantage of it, apply it, because application is the key to any idea, because if you don't apply it, it won't affect you and it won't affect your long-term success. Ladies and gentlemen, how incredibly cool is that for us to be able to spend some time with the incredible, awesome, and what a gentleman, Tom Hopkins, ladies and gentlemen. Yes! Let's do it next year, buddy. If we're here. Absolutely. I'll hold you to that. When you get a chance to talk to somebody that inspired you as a young person when you're at the beginning of your career, it really can lift you. And that's exactly what this episode did. To learn about the fact that he struggled at the beginning, just like I did. He went through the challenges at the beginning, just like I did. And then he pushed forward and went on to be an incredibly successful salesperson and then one of the world's most respected sales trainers. If you haven't read his books, go check him out. They're on Amazon. If you haven't followed his work, go check him out. He's been around a long time, but he really has got some golden nuggets to share. And he might just make a difference to you and your career. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading 
public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.